welcome to episode 19 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, and I'm here today with a special guest. Our guest is Dr. Michael Ray, who's the founder of Shenandoah Valley Performance in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, Dr. Ray obtained an MS in exercise science at the University of South Carolina. And from then, he went on to get his DC, his doctorate of chiropractic from Sherman College. Dr. Michael Ray is also a co-host of the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you haven't tuned into that podcast yet, definitely head over there and subscribe and is a clinical athlete provider. Uh, Dr. Ray, Mike, welcome. Thanks, Zach. How are you today? Um, I'm really good, thanks. Uh, And, you know, we had Dr. Mike Isratel last week, Dr. Mike Ray of Chiropractic this week. And I think it's only fitting that we keep up with this theme of truth-seeking uh, within the field, kind of weeding through the nonsense and the gurus. And rather than talking about hypertrophy and performance as we had last week with Dr. Mike Isratel, I think we're going to try to weed through that all with you as it pertains now more specifically to rehabilitation and to pain sciences. So if you don't uh, follow... Uh, Dr. Mike Ray on Instagram, you're going to see a lot of uh, posts replete with studies and Dr. Ray's breakdown of those studies in very simple terms. And a hashtag that he uses quite often is no silly BS, which if we didn't say it verbatim last week, then you definitely heard this uh, advocacy of evidence-based perspectives in not just performance realms, but in rehab as well. And that's really what we're focusing on today. So, uh, Mike, if you want to just kind of talk about this this hashtag that you have, the no silly BS, what are its origins? Really kind of what are you uh, wanting your audience to, to understand with that hashtag and, and motto alone? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to say first, thanks for having me on here today. Um, this is definitely a very uh, passionate topic for me as, as far as pain science goes. Um, the No Silly BS hashtag, it, it was kind of just by happenstance. Uh, a friend of mine, Austin Baraki, who uh, runs Barbell Medicine, wrote an article a while back that talked about No Silly BS. I was like, man, that's an awesome um, kind of statement. It really gets across the message. So we adopted it as our kind of mantra for our clinic uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and that's where that kind of came from. And it's, it's just grown from there. Uh, if anything... We really use it uh, just to kind of portray the message that what we're doing in clinic and with our patients and our athletes, we want to try to be as evidence-based as possible. And we really want to kind of cut away the fat, so to speak, and get rid of anything that we don't really have evidence to say that is necessary for for patient treatment. Awesome. While uh, we'll certainly get into, as I think it's its own topic, uh, that would be the language that we use, not just... Uh, around performance, but the language that we use, namely around rehab and perhaps reshaping uh, clients or athletes' perspectives around current circumstances involving pain. Uh, We know, uh, Mike, for you, semantics are important. Before we get into semantics, we also know that science is very important for you. When we first met, you were wrapping up school, I believe. I think you had your boards like the following month. And we met by, by chance uh, in Asheville. And I think strength ratio was uh, 
we had gotten off the ground perhaps, but, um, you know, I think we were both kind of starting these journeys. And so it's cool to meet up now. Since, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Since your uh, completion of the board exams and of school, where has this journey led you as you perhaps peel back more scientific literature as more scientific literature comes out and also as you've had maybe more time to look over your shoulder uh in relation to your time spent in school how, how is that all coming together now it's been interesting the journey is um, definitely an evolution um as it should be you know we should regularly look back on what we were doing and then look at what we're doing today. And hopefully there's been some changes over time based on what the current scientific literature is showing us. Um, so I could say from what we learn in schools, unfortunately, tend to not always be the most up to date. Um, that's kind of a generalized statement, but usually they are very much taught towards what do we need to know for boards and what does that information require in order to get licensed as a clinician. And then from there, um, you know, usually when we when I talk to students and when I um, communicate with students through either our seminars or through clinical athlete, it sounds like there's still very much as a, a large gap between scientific literature and the evidence we see from that and clinical practice. Um, and so that's something that we continuously try to bridge. But uh, it's been an evolution from going from school and realizing that, which is kind of difficult um, to look at what you learned in school and then look at what the evidence has. Um, you realize we have a lot more evidence for what we probably shouldn't be doing versus what we should be doing for our patients and athletes. And so you have to be willing to kind of accept that and say, okay, let's erase the majority of what I thought I knew. And now let's look at the scientific literature and see how do I update my current stance on uh, X, Y, or Z? And how do I move forward to that and apply it to clinical practice? Uh, in your mind, when you work with patients, and, and maybe just like a pause before we dive into some of the more eye-opening literature that perhaps contradicts most what had been taught. Um, but in your mind, do you feel like there is this um, bridge that is coming closer and closer together between what the literature is showing and what perhaps, and if you haven't heard episode 18 with Dr. Israel, you might want to go and look more into, but what's coming out from the latest pain science and what we know now about how to train safely and appropriately and with intelligent progression is, is that bridge coming closer together and in your mind and in your practice as far as like how to approach treatment as what we see in the strength conditioning world and then as far as towards pain exactly yeah absolutely um i i think you know to start off like pain is super complicated um i, I it's one of the probably the most difficult um, topics to kind of travel down the rabbit hole with just because there's still so much we don't understand about it and we don't know, but evidence continuously is elucidating uh, new perspectives on it. And we're kind of beginning to see things that are good correlates to the development of um, chronic pain, especially is a, a very growing topic. And then seeing it um, based on that, you know, with like fear avoidance models of behavior, um, perpetuating issues, uh, exercise very much comes into how do we help someone that's dealing with some type of chronic pain issue and how do we get them moving again? And it all could be easily synthesized down to um, when dealing with patients, what are they able to do currently? And then what are they not able to do and what do they want to be able to do? And usually that comes down to functional goals. You know, what can't you do today that you want to be able to do in the future? And then as a clinician, how do I get you from where you're at to where you want to be? 
and this is typically centered around the discussion of their their own painful experience and pain perception that they've had thus far. Now, how do you uh, consider what would be something that an athlete can or cannot do? Well, I think a big realization that I've had, because with our athletes who come to us seeking to resolve chronic pains, I've perhaps kind of uh, reevaluated what an athlete can or cannot do simply by helping them find a pain-free posture or pain-free range of motion. They might, for instance, be squatting on a slant board or with weightlifting shoes with minimal knee and hip flexion where that might not look like the deep squat they were once capable of, but hey, it's something that for the moment is allowing them to perform uh, an exercise using squat-related musculature pain-free. And over time, we'd encourage just a little bit more. Uh, do you see can and can'ts in terms of their performance relative to what they used to do rather than like an ideal as for what a movement might look like in a textbook, if that makes sense? I think so. Um, I, I tend to, to shy away from like ideals and, and good versus bad, especially as it relates to like exercise and movement. Um, but I totally agree that um, a lot of times the, the framing of it is, is perhaps you're not currently training for the athlete at what you were training at, but what can we get you to be able to do currently right now? Um, and this kind of goes towards too, if we're looking at the identity of a person or identity of an athlete, if you identify yourself as an athlete and suddenly you feel incapable of doing what you previously did, that can be a major issue and a very diff difficult kind of psychological battle to work through. So the second that we can start getting them um, going through tolerable ranges of motion and loading through those ranges of motion and making them feel like an athlete again, I think that's a very positive psychological factor for the clinician. Yeah, absolutely. In this time since you've been in school and now, uh, what would you say are the major ways that your training of an athlete has changed and that training of an athlete would be to resolve uh, chronic pains in, in this particular instance yeah uh, this is really where it gets to to semantics matter and the words that we utilize especially as clinicians and the things that we say to people uh, we need to be very very careful how we use our language um, because uh, we know, and, and if we go into the discussion of like, placebos and nocebos, that our, our language can be very damaging to a person. And we have good uh, research evidence coming out on this now um, that looks at how a clinician says something to someone can kind of dictate uh, outcomes in the long run. And so if I use some, some terms that tend to be kind of fearful, um, and I talk about, you know, for example, I put up an image and we look at this and say, well, you've got um, spinal degenerative disc disease, so, you know, uh, if you've got some damage there, you've got um, a spondylolisthesis, so say a, a vertebra is moved on top of another, um, you don't have the exact textbook alignment we'd want to see, so maybe there's a, some mild scoliosis or something. And we talk about all of the negatives that's going on versus um, all of the things they have going right for them, then these can almost create fear for the person, and this tends to make them... Um, not want to engage in activity or not do the things that they need to do on a daily basis. And we even have studies showing, for example, like with chronic low back pain, where they've interviewed patients that have had chronic low back pain and asked them basically, what did they hear their, um, what was the narrative that they've heard since going through the healthcare system? Um, and you hear all kinds of narratives like, 
um, they're fearful if they bend forward and pick something up that their their spine is basically going to just completely disintegrate and they're not going to be able to walk again and they're going to be paralyzed. And there's a lot of fear that comes out from the narrative. And then when they, they pull these patients, um, they ask them, you know, where did you get this narrative from? A huge percentage was from clinicians themselves. So they're hearing that information from the clinician and then they're adopting that as their new narrative. So in essence, we've kind of reframed the reality for them based on what they can't do and all the things that are wrong with them versus what they can do and all the things that they have going for them. Yeah, and I think you often have this identity created around the diagnosis where you'll see an athlete, even maybe hashtag, I don't know if you've seen this, they'll like hashtag the diagnosis so as to maybe create this identity that explains perhaps why they're not performing where they want to be, but might also uh, just in some way, I think, help them know that they have an answer to something. Though I think, and if I'm up to my latest pain science, that label or the name we give something doesn't necessarily mean that's why they're feeling the pain in the first place, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It, it certainly seems to be giving people uh, pieces of their identity with a diagnosis. And what we're seeing is a very slow transition in the research that prognosis uh, matters much more than oftentimes the diagnosis for chronic pain cases. Now, that isn't to say that biology doesn't matter. It's still very much a correlate in the process, but it's trying to get us as clinicians uh, in the field to realize that, that it's not just the biology of what we're seeing on, say, an image, but there are also psychological and sociological factors that make up the entire pain perception for the person. Um, and so when we look at that, that kind of helps us start reframing our narrative and saying, well, yes, you have these issues going on, but that doesn't mean that you're abnormal uh, versus a, a normal person. Um, and that a small semantics change makes a huge difference in someone. They no longer are just spinal degenerative disc disease or their diagnosis, but they're a human being first. And then what are they wanting to be able to do as a human being? And how do these things play a role in the prognostic factors, looking at outcomes down the road? And so that, that is, um, in my mind, a major difference, uh, how we used to practice, say, um, when I was going through school and being taught versus how people are looking at pain science now and how we could be practicing better um, for the patient. We had, uh, I think, a lot of our messages, I find, just echo this no silly uh, BS. We probably have different ways of phrasing it. And, and in our own way, you know, sifting through social media, not only do you have the number one way to improve your squat or the five best tips to improve an overhead squat, etc., but you also find uh, these posts that are speaking about the number one way to fix your pains or the, yeah. Number, yeah. the top five ways to like cure your knee, knee pain. And it seems to create a few things it seems to create this kind of almost uh it's like a, a client uh or coach athlete relationship that is seemingly imbalanced where someone is possessing of uh, knowledge that the other couldn't possibly obtain and that the other is there to fix and completely fix all of their issues so that they never happen again. So we said that the number one cure is knowing that 
there is no cure. You're far more empowered than you think. And perhaps the way to getting better is much more in your own hands than you think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. I think social media is, um, I think it's great for a lot of reasons. It, it can be, uh, it can be used for a lot of good and then it can also be used for a lot of bad things. Um, but it, it's, it tends to be perpetuating a lot of, a lot of these, these problems with, uh, quote unquote, treating pain. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's an education thing. So, and it also is a marketing thing, unfortunately, and it gets out of business model but we are very good right now in the collective field of, of dealing with athletes and patients at creating issues um, as opposed to uh, creating um, the realization that maybe these things that we call issues aren't uh, as problematic as we once thought. And maybe these are um, somewhat of normative adaptations over time. And then maybe that we start realizing that there are complexities to pain and, and treating the personal experience of dealing with pain. And then what we're realizing more and more through research is that instead of creating an external locus of control, so having a person believe in outside factors that are um, not under their control and uh, dealing with the painful experience that we could instead build autonomy and build internal locus of control. So they have the realization that they can handle this on their own and that we build self-efficacy. And these, these are the things we tend to see when we look at chronic pain research that are big correlates to the development of chronic pain is what is a person's self-efficacy do they have an internal locus of control? Um, do they have uh, self-care behaviors in place that aid with their management of dealing with this on a daily basis? Um, are they progressing towards their goals both on their own as well? Um, so it's it's tough, man. I, I like social media for a lot of reasons, but just as you described, I see a lot of problems being created for people versus saying that um, maybe there isn't this one way to do X, Y, or Z to fix your knee pain and that we need to kind of broad frame this a little bit better and not create unnecessary issues for people. Yeah, and it, especially as there's research uh, now speaking to the implications of someone's expectations and how they might improve, that if they're receiving information from social media as for the problems they have, you would think that expectations wouldn't be high if it's a problem that you have and a professional is telling you, and you don't know how to solve it. But starting with how you as a professional go about this with, let's say, a new client, is you have the semantics. You know how to perhaps reduce fear using empowering language. And the semantics is lay, uh, layered on top of these foundational sciences or findings, ev uh, evidence-based findings. Um, do you involve explicitly these evidence-based findings up front, do they come as assurance as the athlete is progressing? For instance, if someone is talking about the results of certain imaging on their back or their knee or any other joint, do you let them know perhaps what that might look like uh, for an asymptomatic population? How many people may have the exact same uh, imaging findings, but they're in zero pain whatsoever? Yeah, it's it's definitely um, to hit on setting expectations. That's probably to go hand in hand with semantics. My my first intervention, so to speak, is that um, we need to set expectations with the person, which oftentimes does involve looking at images, um, especially if they've gone somewhere else before getting to me. And so there's already maybe expectations that were previously set that need to be reframed and discussed, or we can actually have the first interaction with them and try to set them from the out of the gate. 
Um, and we have good research um, demonstrating how setting expectations both influences pain perception as well as prognostics and for uh, long-term outcomes. But very much, um, you know, we are realizing more and more with new research as it relates to imaging and pain perception that is becoming more and more difficult to call things triggers and call things um, causative of pain. Now, we can always discuss levels of correlation to the development of something, but to use the word cause at this point, I think is uh, very difficult. And, and I have no problem saying wrong at this point based on what we see in the pain science. So if someone does come in and, and we're looking at an image and they've been previously told, you know, this is why you're having pain perception and this is a, a chronic pain development, perhaps as a correlate to it, but it doesn't necessarily need to mean that that's why you're perceiving pain. And we need to consider a lot of other factors um, in addition to just what we see on an image. Um, and that is... It's interesting because when you interact with that person, you may be the first person that said, you know, hey, we've seen this in asymptomatic populations. And if anything, what that is, is begging the question, well, why are we becoming symptomatic? So now we have to start asking better questions. If we have, you know, larger studies of 2000 people that were looked at and we scanned their shoulders and we saw um, uh, longitudinally that as you go through age, you're developing things that we once considered abnormal and pain drivers like um, rotator cuff tendinopathy, uh, rotator cuff uh, tears to the area, um, subacromial changes, um, osteoarthritis, like things that we are now seeing can occur um, throughout life and get more prevalent later in life. It's making it harder and harder to say, here's what I see on the image. This is why you're having pain. This is the intervention you need because of that. And so it's very much kind of muddying the waters for people. But because of that, it's making us ask the questions, well, what could be a correlate to pain perception for this person? And so we're realizing, you know, fear avoidance behavior, self-efficacy, um, catastrophizing. So uh, catastrophizing would be um, when you are experiencing a situation, do you think worst case scenario every time? Um, it also could be a big one that goes towards the Instagram thing we were just talking about would be dependency. Um, have you had the expectation set that if you don't have X, Y, or Z done or X, Y, or Z intervention, that you're going to continue to perceive pain because of what we saw in the image? So if you don't get the joint manipulation or you don't get um, K-tape or instrument-assisted soft tissue manipulation or injections or surgery or even um, exercise, it, it very much can be a placebo as well, that if you don't do these things, then you're going to have pain perception. And that that gets that you were know, creating problems for people in order to solve them. A um, Oftentimes, and I tend to kind of think optimistically, most people are operating out of the goodness of their heart and they're trying to help people genuinely. We just haven't got the evidence to the front line yet to say there's better ways to approach this process. Of course, and I do agree with that. And I think it, it's important to say that, you know, there is certainly, if you're listening and perhaps follow me as we certainly get into this, placebo realm uh, that this is there's no slander here is just simply trying to provide what is latest uh, in, in what we know through evidence-based perspectives and, and scientific literature so it seems Mike that and kind of watching clinical athlete evolve and watching you evolve that the no silly BS hashtag might be a little bit more complex than at face value when we consider the potency of placebo. So where are you now in your, and having just listened to the latest uh, uh, clinical athletes podcast, 
where are you now in your understanding of what we know to not do exactly what is it, it meaning a product or a practice is marketed as achieving successfully versus the simple power of placebo. Does that now kind of muddle the waters a little bit in terms of what is quote unquote truthful as we know it based on the literature, but then also what the kind of what I would put in the category of like the, the art of coaching or the art of being a practitioner, what might help that athlete achieve reduced levels of pain over time? Yeah, it's it's always in the back of my mind at this point. It's something I'm always considering. Um, and I think the easiest way to discuss this is the realization as a clinician, um, you in and of yourself are a placebo. And so it becomes a question of how am I going to ethically maximize this placebo without creating unnecessary dependency on, on myself or on some other intervention that we don't have good evidence to say is necessary in the treatment of this patient and their particular case. Um, so with, with that in mind, it becomes like, do I need this to maximize the placebo ethically and, um, and do long-term benefit for the patient? And so we have good research um, by people like Peterman that have looked at how does setting expectations influence pain perception? Um, and so it's called the placebo-like expectancy effect. So, so it's simply just uh, talking to someone, setting the expectation that this issue could get better, giving them a verbal affirmation or verbally setting the expectation will get analgesia. So you'll get pain mitigation with that. Um, so if I know that setting my expectations either verbally or um, you can use imagery as well, um, and that alone can get analgesia, then I'm less inclined to want to depend myself or get the patient dependent on something that we don't have evidence to say is necessary. And if they're using something or really do believe in something, and maybe you can list some of these things that perhaps even in your time since school uh, might have been taught one way, but we're learning that it's in fact quite the opposite. But if they believe in this particular thing, do you look to wean them off of it? If it works, don't change it. What is your approach in that case? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's an evolution for sure. Like when I was going through school, um, when I was getting ready to finish school, I very much have been in that boat. I've, I've used joint manipulations. I've used instrument-assisted soft tissue manipulation, uh, kinesiology tape, you name it. Like I was there. And so I know that it's very easy to become dependent on those things, both as the clinician and as the patient. And it goes under the umbrella of, well, quote unquote, because it works. And that's how we get dependency on these things. But what we're realizing is uh, as more research comes out on this and there are better studies conducted, like randomized controlled trials on these things, does it truly work? And what does, and more importantly, what does it work actually mean? Um, for patient cases, it comes down to a lot of times pain mitigation. Well, again, if we know that we can mitigate that without those tools, then why are we um, going down the, the road of actually utilize them? And what we see in the pain literature is if we're going to create a dependency on something, then we're probably not um, instilling autonomy in the patient. And we could be perpetuating the development of chronic pain for a longstanding time. Now, when we uh, take into consideration these sciences and the semantics and we're starting to move into the implementation of a plan that we've, we've grounded ourselves in uh, as much science-based or evidence-based practice as possible. And perhaps it sounds being mindful of 
what placebos people need, though ultimately trying to resist the athlete or the client creating a dependency on these things. Where do you see training being unique for rehab, if at all, in relation to just normal training? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And I wanted to address another question that you previously asked on what do I do if they come in and they already have a defen- dependency in place? Let's try yeah. back there. Let's rewind. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's interesting. You, you have to be careful. Um, th- there are things like the backfire effect. So if you challenge someone's strongly held belief and you go in too quickly or you don't have um, a relationship of trust and therapeutic alliance to build with the person, then you could get a backfire effect where they hold stronger to that belief, right? And so then it's less likely that I'm going to change their stance on what they do or don't perceive the need. Um, What I will say is I try to educate as best as I can. So I try to discuss with the person, well, this is what we see in the current research literature on this topic, on what you're dealing with, and on these modalities that may have already had dependency issues. And um, these are the reasons that I don't offer them. Now, whether they make the election to go somewhere else and get those, that's up to them. But I do feel compelled at this point in clinical practice that if we're going to make a paradigm shift and we're going to make a change in how we approach um, the discussion of pain, then we need to, to very much so start making changes uh, at the clinician level. And we need to not necessarily just give in to what patients think they need. Because most likely, if we look at patient preferences, Um, We have studies on patient preferences and kind of where they originate. It tends to have come from the clinician or from an Instagram or Facebook post of someone talking about how they cured someone's issue. And so we're the ones setting expectations. We're the ones setting preferences. And if we don't start resetting that and reframing it differently, then it's going to be very difficult to make this paradigm shift. And, you know, and I'm sorry for skipping that over. I got excited. Uh, And I've, I've actually, um, evolved my uh, stance on that as well as this literature was coming out pertaining to um, the few things you've alluded to already kt tape or uh, spinal manipulations or even if we throw foam rollers into the mix to be completely honest in the beginning you know if you are now uh, aware of the latest literature and kind of thrusted upon that person in a way that like you said doesn't align with empowering uh, or just even like basic human decency with semantics, then you're creating that kind of God complex, right? You are now possessing of the latest scientific literature that this must person, that this person must do away with, but uh, right. In a, in a way that's still, I think you're kind of playing the same card, but maybe wearing a, a slightly different hat. Uh, however, if you just provide it, as you said, uh, as what we know to be true within the limitations of these studies, um, it's ultimately up to you what what you're going to to do, and you can always go to another practitioner. But if someone comes to you, and this I think lays a better background for my question, which was pertaining to how do we train people who have these chronic pains, when people come to you in your clinic, are they often surprised by what it looks like? Uh, or what it lacks relative to perhaps past experience. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because um, I, I get asked this a lot. Uh, if you come to my clinic and I tell people pretty upfront on initial consult, like the two things that I'm willing to offer as a clinician at this point in time, based on what we have in the research evidence, if, if we're truly going to be evidence-based, it's going to be education, uh, number one. 
Uh, and then number two is we have good research to say movement tends to help and it can help a lot of different ways, um, especially if you're fear avoidant. Um, so you don't want to, to bend over and pick something up for fear of you're going to get low back pain um, because that's what you got previously. Then how do we regress the movement down so it's less threatening to the individual so then they can complete it. And then in completing it, they also build some autonomy because they realize, oh, I am capable of this and I didn't think I was. And look, I even did it. And maybe I didn't do it without complete pain relief, which uh, is a whole nother discussion, but maybe I did it with less pain than I did it with previously. And so that helps with fear avoidance and building autonomy through movement um, and it builds self-efficacy. So if someone were to walk in and, and I were working with a, a patient or an athlete, the, the trick of that is you wouldn't know which is which, most likely. If, if I'm doing my job the way I hope I'm doing it, you wouldn't be able to tell, is, is he just training an athlete or is he working with a patient? And, and that's a place that we find ourselves in, oftentimes forgetting why our athletes who are now excelling at high levels why they even came to the you know year-long relationships, multiple year-long relationships, why they came to us in the first place, because the foundational approaches that we used with them, really this minimum effect, uh, effective dose of, of volume, uh, this minimum intensity needed to perform an exercise comfortably evolves into a normal training plan for their goals. So what a, and I, I think you can, speak to this perhaps similarly is that what a rewarding thing to have this continuum that uh, is, is so cool in that the athlete, I think once they, especially if they are an athlete, they step into that role in their mind no longer as the rehab patient, but as the athlete who's just perhaps taking a couple steps back and just building a better or slightly different looking base relative to what they've done in the past. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very rewarding to see kind of that um, that ability to once again feel like an athlete, so to speak, and realize what they are still capable of and how they can still have goals, and we can still try to meet those goals and progress them forward. You know, I was listening to um, an interview that Quinn did the other day. I forget who he was interviewing with, but he said something that I very much agree with, which was, you know, if you're you shouldn't be able to tell whether someone's just training or they're in rehab, because I feel like we've very much created two worlds here where you're either in rehab or you're training and rehab was created because, well, we need to treat pain, right. Um, and dysfunction and issues, but the two are one in the same, both are involving education, both are involving movement. Um, and you still should be looking at that, that this is still training. Perhaps it's a regression from what you were doing, so then the goal is how do I, as a clinician, program appropriately to mitigate deconditioning, completely mitigate atrophy, and still specifically progressing towards what your goal are. So still following, you know, specific adaptation to impose demand. So that's how, that's what quote unquote rehab should look like is how do we do things that are pertinent to what you want to be able to do? Um, and, and this very much still goes towards the moniker uh, of no silly BS because it's looking at, well, if you don't want to be really good at juggling flaming chainsaws on BOSU balls, then why do I have you standing on a BOSU ball juggling, you know, doing silly exercises? Because you're not going to get better at anything but that. So I need to make sure that I'm designing rehab exercises that are specific to what you want to do as an athlete. And what that usually turns into do uh, turns into is just quite often we're having you do squat variations and deadlift variations and overhead pressing variations because those tend to mimic from the strength world um, towards a lot of people need as an athlete long-term 
um, as well as the, the sport that they're trying to accomplish. I think a, a similar topic or a similar instance that we've had with our athletes is if you have an athlete who, let's just say they can squat 500 pounds and they'll come to us and you know, we, we'll say, okay, we're going we're gonna to squat. We're going to kind of find your baseline, see at what range of motion and with what loading pain occurs or which, with which you experience or report increased pain. Uh, they're surprised that we start with that type of motion because I even think the listeners are hearing, well, if someone has knee pain or if they're diagnosed with some type of like patellar tendinopathy, well, you know, why, why aren't we doing something that resembles what would be, I'd say like the classic perhaps knee extension exercises or stretching? Why would we dissolve the squat that seems potentially injurious? And I know the person who was having this conversation that, that came to work with us, you squat 450 pounds and you report having made no progress with your current uh, program that involves uh, very lightweighted knee extension exercises, foam rolling and the like. So I think it might be best for the audience for you to perhaps explain uh, maybe even a case study of your own, how this, uh, you know, onboarding looks and what effective. Yeah, it's, um, it's very simplistic, honestly, as and I think that tends to be what works best is uh, the two questions I'm asking are um, from the get go are what can you do and what can't you do? And why do you think you can't do that? Um, and oftentimes it's why well, I get pain when I do whatever that is. And so then it's like, okay, well, how can I regress that down to where you can accomplish the task, but it still resembles the overall desired outcome or desired goal? And then how do I progress that appropriately? So, you know, I, I treat a number of powerlifters uh, quite regularly. And, you know, these are people that are able to, to squat uh, or, or deadlift six or 700 pounds very easily. And then suddenly they're told because they had whatever injury, uh, let's say patellar tendinopathy, that's an easy one that they shouldn't squat. And oftentimes, especially even still, unfortunately, the information given is you should go rest. Um, and let's say, you know, let's let rest you for six weeks and then you can go start rehab somewhere, um, which is what we're seeing in the current research literature is absolutely the worst thing you could do for tendinopathy. Uh, tendons need and want to be loaded. So it's just a matter of finding the dosage of loading. Um, and we could certainly have the discussion of, well, what does loading mean and how do we define it? there's a lot of different types, but finding out um, what are they capable of. So if they're having... Absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, no. It, get into that, that type of loading and what that exactly means. That'd be fantastic. Oh, yeah. So like, um, you know, oftentimes we see um, with tendinopathies... Can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry about that. Feel free, Mike, just to kind of finish out like why these powerlifters... Are, are, are having success perhaps with you, whereas with those traditional methods, they're not. If we have time at the end, I would I would love to get into the the loading for sure. Oh, yeah. but, but certainly that that thought you had. Yeah, um, so it's just figuring out. Well, if you're having, um, let's say, patellar pain while you're uh, squatting to full depth, but you have good range of motion to ninety degrees, and you don't feel any discomfort through that. Well, there's no reason that I can't load you through that range of motion through tolerance. So we just call it loading through active range of motion to tolerance. And then we have to see, well, how do I improve your ability to go lower? I just progress it lower over time. So we load the, the person up. Um, for example, in tendinopathies, we see heavy, slow resistance does quite well with this. 
And so that just means basically tempo strength training through the movement. So I load it up through that movement and I give it time for adaptation. And then I load it up again through that movement while slowly just trying to increase their ability to go into the, to the squat range they need to accomplish for um, powerlifting competitions. And then we continue doing that. And over time, we find good adaptation, um, decreased pain perception, while still mitigating complete deconditioning or atrophy that would occur if someone just told you to just go stretch or go foam roll or go do whatever X, Y, and Z uh, is getting pain mitigation. And I, I think something that you, uh, a question that you lead with that you mentioned being very important that might save a lot of time is that what can you do, what can't you do, and really in their own words, how would they define what can't they do? I think that's a very important part. In our own experience, we've noticed, uh, I'll ask, what can't you do? And the athlete will say, squat. I can't squat. And will sometimes lead to more questions. Right? With, with what load and through what range do you have this pain? Uh, and to kind of piggyback off what you just said, they'll say, my, and this is, a little bit of a stretch, but we have heard it. I have pain with 90% through full range. Yeah. And I'll ask, what about 70%? What about 60 or 50 or 40%? And maybe do you have pain if you do the 50, 60, or even 70% for more reps? And then you might even have uh, someone, this would be very conveniently say, oh, no, not at all. Well, then that almost just becomes a simple uh, program alteration of perhaps backing off intensity and building a little bit more volume with, of course, good mechanics and, and the eccentric loading that you mentioned. But I think asking that question becomes so important because like we've spoken about and really, I think, hit well upon is that this is a problem that they have in their mind. So it's, it's in their mind that they can't squat when in reality, we just have to switch the program up a little bit. Yeah, I think that the question of, um, well, why do you think you can't do that? It opens up a couple of avenues. The first avenue, it gets them to discuss kind of how they feel about their pain perception, which is very important because we need to tease out the narratives that they've been provided, like why they think they're experiencing pain. What do they know about pain? Um, what is their understanding of pain? So then we can address, you know, any previous experiences with pain perception and then also social, social and cultural norms that may be underpinning that, that perception. But then on the other side of it, it also gets us to see as well um, what other previous diagnoses have they received and what is the narrative that they receive with that diagnosis and what is this relevancy um, to this person being able to say squat um, long term and how does that play? Is it a, a major correlate that we should be concerned with or is this something that we can kind of say, you know, yes, I understand that's what you've been told and that's what you're dealing with, but maybe it's a little bit more of a lower correlate than what we should be concerned with. So ultimately that question answers what does matter and what should we be paying attention to versus maybe we can set the expectations that's not that big of a deal um, and that we shouldn't get overly concerned with it or overly focused on it. Um, and then we can kind of progress them forward. I, I think um, if I were to pick one paper or one researcher that's heavily influenced uh, how I practice today versus how I practiced when I first got out of school would be uh, Tim Gabbett's work with things like acute on chronic workload ratios, because I think it's very much for the athlete coming down to loading adaptations and your ability to rest and recover, stress the area again, rest and recover and just progressively overload, but making sure that this is a, a process 
um, and then looking at, well, how do I progress this through the process appropriately while still ensuring good performance and minimizing injury risk throughout the process? Yeah, very cool. And I, I'll, I'll ask when we, when we get off to see those papers so I can show them to athletes of my own for, from an educational standpoint, as you mentioned, and highlighted the importance of, especially early on. Um, but despite what we now know in the literature uh, with chronic pain and how we know movement to be beneficial, are there certain things that you're, I wouldn't say hung up on, but maybe just confused by? Where, like you said, it's a very complex uh, topic, uh, pain that is, a lot of psychological and, and uh, social influences, in what it, someone might be feeling. Is there something that just isn't really kind of fitting into the, the whole piece as you know it? Or something that you feel like we're still just totally uncertain about, though perhaps maybe getting closer on? Yeah, um, you know, it's that could go a lot of different ways. I think the first thing that's very difficult is we really don't have a concrete definition that we completely agree upon yet as far as how do we define pain, which this goes down the, the semantics road again of we need to make sure that linguistically we're communicating and we're on the same page with one another, both the clinician and the patient, um, and, and how if we don't have a solid working definition, it tends to complicate things from the onset, right? So our premise is already a bit flawed. Um, I was reading, this is probably a week or two ago now that, so we have what's called like the International Association of Pain Sciences definition that's been currently accepted for quite some time now, but has been challenged twice just within the past, I wanna say year or so. Williams and Craig released a definition last year and then Cohen uh, released a definition this year recently. Um, so we're still very much trying to understand how do we even define this? Because this is an experience that's particular to the individual that's sitting in front of us. And we know that that experience is made up of a lot of different things. Culturally, how do we view pain in our society? Um, how do we think about it? How do we relate to it? How do we deal with it um, is the first issue. And then what previously has this person dealt with that has been painful in their life and how does that relate to what they're currently experiencing? So obviously like the unknown variable in this whole discussion would be the person in front of us. And it's because it's such an individualistic experience. And then on top of that, um, I think a lot of times we're struggling as well as clinicians to relay the information appropriately to the person. Like we tend to have two camps that form um, one camp is, you know, uh, the biopsychosocial camp. The other is the biomedical camp. And so one's approach is very much um, we're willing to consider psychosocial factors, but then that kind of gets bastardized by the general public into to a thought process of, well, then this is all in my head. And then the biomedical camp says, well, I look at your image or I look at X, Y, or Z, and this is a structural issue. And so then the person hears, well, this is all in my body. And in reality, what we're realizing more and more is it's just in the person that it's not your head, it's not your body, it's just you. It, it, regardless of whether we're talking about psychosocial correlates, which would be considered in the mind, or we're talking structural correlates, which would be in the body, it's both of the person. So it's not um, one or the other, but it's both, in that it's just the person that we're dealing with. And I think those are things that we're slowly realizing. And I think like Cohen's definition recently released does a really good job of discussing that this shouldn't be a dualistic approach, but that we're just treating the person in front of us. Um, and then the best ways to do that 
would be, you know, like therapeutic alliance and building autonomy and so on and so forth. So I think the first thing that I would say is the biggest issue is we got to keep trying to dig deeper, get a better definition for this and a better way to discuss it. And then as we've gotten a definition, I think the big, second bigger issue and kind of the, the one I always like jumping down a rabbit hole with is reframing the perspective that we have um, that pain is something that we should never experience. Um, and that when we do experience it, it directly means something's quote unquote wrong. And although at times that could be what's happening, we also need to realize that pain is part of just being a living human being on this earth. And that it's something that um, we have to get better at discussing and accepting that it's a part of life. And we need to delineate when is it something that I should be grossly, I should be grossly concerned with and seek out treatment? Or when is it something that I'm capable of handling myself and having the tools in place necessary to handle that situation, which is where I think the clinician comes into play is um, shifting this paradigm to one of reassurance for things that we shouldn't be overly concerned with, and then providing the tools for the other stuff of how to help the person get through it. Wow. I think that was beautifully said. Uh, it, probably the best I've even heard it described uh, is just treating the person. It's like you said, it's multifaceted. Their histories, their perspectives, etc. You really have to get to know this person. I find that it can be a challenge because, unfortunately, these products and these modalities don't just happen to work equally for everyone. If, in fact, not at all as we once thought they did, but instead you're left with your ability to write programs and progress them appropriately with what you know to be sound. And you also have this uh, relationship that you form with this, this athlete and this client. And given the nature of pain, it can take on roles that I would say maybe extend beyond what a strength coach might have or the relationship a strength coach might have with someone who's achieving performance and there's really no pain at all. There, there aren't any uh, psychological um, or kind of sociocultural or socio uh, kind of like even just within the person's own competitive field type uh, experiences, if that makes sense. Have you found it a surprise since leaving school as to how much you play that uh, therapeutic role of support uh, from an emotional standpoint? Yeah, it's, I think it's everything. I mean, we're we're dealing with people and everything that makes up that person. Um, and so when that's the case, you, you have to be sympathetic uh, and have, well, more importantly, have empathy for them. Uh, we had said something earlier about the diagnosis that uh, I meant to, to kind of hit on this, but like, um, I believe it was Cohen, he put out a paper on the stigmatization of patients and how that um, actually mitigates the effectiveness of care and long-term outcomes. And what he means by that is like the applying of a diagnosis to someone labels them and then we remove empathy. So no longer do we look at the person in front of us as a human being who is dealing with some issues that we need to help them work through. But now we see rotator cuff tear, we see patellar tendinopathy, we see um, disc degeneration, we see X, Y, or Z. So I'm now treating this diagnosis rather than treating um, Jimbo, you know, from down the street that's here to see me and needs my help. 
And so I think that's a really important um, message that needs to continue to kind of get out there is regardless of whatever uh, is in front of you or whatever the case history is, you're still treating a person and a human being. And that means that you need to be in a supportive, empathetic, more importantly, role with the person and help them get from where they're at to where they want to be. I, I think this also speaks, and in case you're listening and you yourself have never experienced pain or you haven't worked with any athletes as a coach who've experienced pain, combining both, I think it's highly unlikely. But I do think, Mike, that this same type of decency and seeing of the whole person is important just in general strength and conditioning practices and in coaching where if someone perhaps might not have the technique or skill refinement that someone with much more experience has to see them as a person. I think sometimes coaches might see them as perhaps being worthy of less of their time or perhaps not as significant in their own right because they haven't yet achieved uh, a certain level of proficiency or haven't yet been able to express their strength appropriately. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that behavior in others or remember when you were just coaching before you were practicing that person beyond the person squatting, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's seeing them for who they are and being relatable to them um, and realizing that they're not just, you know, is this an elite level athlete, a high level athlete? Is this a collegiate athlete? Is this a high school person? Um, are they a beginner who's never done this? But just seeing them that they're a person first um, and then concerning yourself, well, how do I help the human being in front of me versus, um, you know, looking at them differently based on categories? Yeah, absolutely. So with your um, involvement with your own clients and as a clinical athlete provider, and maybe you can kind of speak to clinical athlete as a whole, but where do you see the field going? Where would you like to see it in, say, five years from now? Is there, based on what we've kind of explained in our own experiences, is there a, a a facility in which someone goes to receive chronic pain treatment. And there's also a gym that perhaps has kettlebells and dumbbells and barbells. Is it uh, a future in which the healthcare providers are just in better communication with coaches and looking to educate them or both? Where would you like to see it go? Yeah, I, I think that, um, Ideally, education is where it's at. So disseminating a massive amount of information about what we're seeing in the pain science and making sure that it's palatable and digestible by the general public and that they can take it and understand it and utilize it. So I think education, however we can best disseminate that information is first and foremost. So that's one of the main reasons I teach seminars for clinical athletes is because I think very, very much so that that's going to be our best bet is, is we shift an entire paradigm and a viewpoint by educating people. Um, and that's the only way we can really move forward from from our current status, which we're um, unfortunately, I feel like we're just like epically failing at currently, especially in America. And then from there, um, deciding, you know, a little bit better uh, prognostically who needs treatment, who actually needs to sit down and work with a clinician versus who can we just educate and then they won't need us any longer. So we need to get better at deciding kind of a tiered approach to care. And then my bias is just very strong towards strength training. So obviously, like, I want to see 
if you and if you walk into my clinic, that's what you see is you see a little bit of office space with uh, a gym area. Um, so I my bias is very strongly towards how do I start loading this person through tolerable ranges of motion and do it as quickly as possible um, and empowering them. So my bias would be, can we see more facilities that involve almost like um, I guess a play area would be the best way to describe it, right? Like to me, it's just a big playground and how can we get them back there and start exercising, start moving and empowering them. Um, and then we just have way, way too much research at this point that basically says um, we should be loading everyone uh, via like a barbell for the rest of their life from from adolescence on uh, because it's just, it's does way too many, too many good things throughout life and increases functional longevity and mitigates things like all-cause mortalities and uh, reduces morbidity and it's way too many positives to not be doing it. Um, when I when I teach our seminar, I, I joke and um, the guy the guy I teach it with is a close friend, Derek. He jokes also that um, if we really want a fountain of youth for our society, it's most likely a barbell. It's not a fountain. That's awesome. Um, you know, my my fiance asked me this question. Uh, she said, "With what you know uh, and." with how that information, as we discussed in the show, influences your training. For me, it's certainly not a practice. I wouldn't, no one in our company is a, a, an allied health professional or a medical doctor. Um, but she asked, are there any limitations to that approach? And I thought about that, and I thought, well, I see a major limitation being perhaps the population of people for whom the barbell means nothing. Yes, absolutely. Like, um, and I've talked about this previously. Uh, you have to meet the person where they're at and you have to design uh, treatment plans and protocols to what they want to be able to do. And, and this is why the discussion of pain is very important. I mean, you may have someone come in who isn't an athlete. And so what they care about is that they've been suffering chronic pain for 10, 20, 30 years. They've tried all of these interventions and yet they're still continuously dealing with the issue, but they don't care about um, being a barbell athlete or being uh, uh, some other team-based sport athlete or an individual sport athlete. They just want to be able to make it through a day without the experience of pain perception. And so for those people, I still think that um, teaching them exercises and movements can be beneficial, but it needs to be under the guise and the realization that the likelihood of this being maintained long term, unless I can quote unquote convert them to, to one of us, um, it's probably not going to happen. So it's what can I do to discuss and educate about their pain perception? That's going to be much more long lasting than anything I do with them in clinic. The words that I say, the narratives that I provide, these are the things that are going to stick with our patients and with our athletes long term. And so I want to really make sure that when I'm disseminating a narrative, that I have really good, solid research evidence stating that the, this narrative is appropriate to this person in front of me. Yeah, and I think with uh, Dr. Israel on last week, he spoke about how the just because replies should not be good enough. They should not, in an athlete or a patient's mind, be acceptable for the rationale behind doing something. So if you're listening, uh, I would recommend to be mindful of that as an athlete or as a patient, or as we've discussed, perhaps it's just one and the same. If you're experiencing pain, you're ex experiencing times where there are PRs left and right, 
you can kind of be part of this same continuum. But if you want to ask the right questions around pain, I think clinical athlete and people like Dr. Mike here are really providing, like you said, Mike, the education and empowerment that athletes need to move forward because it's unbiased. Yeah, we express our limitations, we express what we don't know, and we communicate to people as human beings. At the end of the day, that, that just feels good, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's empowering. It honestly is to, to realize like my tools and my toolbox, so to speak, are predominantly education. Like you are um, just discussing with one other you know, member of your community, however larger community is, what we currently see in research about the topic that we're discussing. And as you said, there's no attachment to it. If I have more research and there's enough out there to tip the scale in a different direction, because there's no attachment, I'm not anchored to it, then I follow where that evidence leads us. So you're constantly asking, um, you know, what are we seeing in the research evidence? What should we say? What should we be doing? And it shifts your premise from being one of I'm right to one of I just want to be a little less wrong uh, the next day. Uh, have you recently, you know, being respectful of your time before we sign off here and let people know where they can find you, have you in the past year or so had a case where you had to say, I don't know, and if so, where did you look to or where do you first look to uh, in these matters of not knowing? Yeah, if, if there's something that I don't know um, or I'm not familiar with, I think a systematic review, a meta-analysis is the first place to go on a topic um, so, you know, you can go straight to PubMed, you could use Google Scholar and you could look up, you know, whatever the topic is, let's say you're very unfamiliar with um, tendinopathies and you could go to PubMed and look up tendinopathy reviews, um, stuff like that and read about it and see, you know, and they do, a lot of people do reviews that they'll go through and they'll discuss, you know, this is this issue. This is what we've seen from a diagnostic standpoint, an etiology standpoint, a treatment standpoint currently, this is what we have good as solid evidence for. This is what we don't quite yet know. Um, and this is what we don't quite yet understand. So I think that it should be for any person out there, the kind of first stepping stone, so to speak, of let's look at a lot of different research evidence under one umbrella, which would be a, a systematic review, and then take it from there and see, well, now I've updated myself on, on possibly like the pathophysiology of the issue. Let's look at what are we seeing in the research evidence as far as treatment goes. Awesome. Well, uh, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. If people want to know where to find you, either in Virginia or where they can find you if you are uh, conducting a seminar through Clinical Athlete, where should they go? And of course, we'll attach things in the notes for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, website would just be svperformanceclinic.com. Um, you can find my clinic information there. I'm also on Facebook as Michael Ray, Instagram um, as michael.ray.dc. Um, and those are probably the best, best place to find me. I tend to be pretty active on Instagram regularly. Um, and then for clinical athlete seminars, um, you can just go to clinicalathlete.com and there should be an education tab there. We are still planning out our 2018 travel schedule, but hopefully I'll have something nailed down in the next coming weeks. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Mike, Thank you so much for your time. I, I really do think, because it's a topic that I'm very passionate about as well, that it's something that people need to hear. And what you touched upon, and I actually haven't ever heard it said such, is that 
pain is part of perhaps being human, but if we have the appropriate language and perspectives and empowering plans to act upon it, we can create a whole different relationship entirely with it. Absolutely. So that is incredible. Uh, really that and treating the individual, the human first, are, it's, it's profound. Uh, and, and if you're listening to this, uh, you don't know uh, where to find someone like uh, Mike. You can go on Clinical Athlete too. And Mike, if I'm not mistaken, you can find people within the Clinical Athlete Network globally now, correct? Yes. Yeah. They have, um, if you go to clinicalathlete.com, scroll down to the bottom of the webpage, I have a map there. You can punch in your zip code and it'll pull up any provider that's uh, in the area surrounding you. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, Mike, thanks so much again. I uh, really appreciate your time. Absolutely, Zach. Thanks for having me on.